The Robots of Death had been the greatest Doctor Who story ever. However, young Ben was deeply suspicious about the educative appearance of a Doctor Who series that appeared to be set in Victorian times. Was this going to be Doctor Who Goes the Classic Serial? If so, where would be the best bit in Doctor Who? The monsters! This is a flashback Metamedias 2 podcast on the talons of Wang Chiang. Welcome, everybody, to, I think, what must be, by now, the 55th... Yes, indeed. ...podcast, which goes <laughs> by the name of the Metabilis 2. Um, I am one of the Metabilis 2. My, uh, my name is Ben. I am he. And I am David, the other half of the Metabilis duo. Met- the Metabilis duo, <laughs> exactly. And I think today, tonight, um, this evening, this morning, whenever you're listening, um, we're going to be talking about... What is, I think, a very, very, very fine example of the Who Maker's art, right? Um, which is The Talons of Wang Chiang. Mm-hmm. Bob Holmes, almost an emergency script delivered at the end of the Hinchcliffe Holmes era. I think he works best under some kind of pressure, does Mr. Holmes. I think some of his best scripts have come that way, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, let, me, let me just dive straight in, and I think... The way that works is that when Mr. Holmes is under pressure, what he does is he mines his various <laughs> passions. Um, he, I, uh, uh, I do believe he used to be a policeman. Um, uh, I do believe he loved Sherlock Holmes. I do believe he grew up reading Sexton Blake. I do believe that he enjoyed the Hammer Fu Manchu movies of the, of the 60s. He just mines all the things that he loves and throws them into a big pot and boils them up and mixes them around and throws in the Doctor and Leela and we come out with the Phantom of the Opera gone mad. <laughs> what happens if Jack the Ripper was actually a time-traveling uh, phantom. monster from the future? From the future, and a phantom of an opera. The foe from the kind. future, yes. <laughs> well, uh, if you will, a foe from the future. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, as written, it's an absolute stonking classic as far as I'm mm-hmm. concerned, yeah. Yep, it's a very detailed production. Hinchcliffe was on his way out, so blew the budget on this one big time. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I have to say, it's very easy. And um, this accounts for my little introduction. At that time, and I think it's actually still in some ways, the BBC really excels when it comes to doing period drama, mm-hmm. and it really excels in period drama when it does Victorian period drama. Yes. So you know all the costumes, all the sets. The BBC at that time in the mid seventies was. You know, this was right in their wheelhouse right. um, in terms of things that they would make. Obviously, you know, giant rats and like time traveling phantoms of the opera <laughs> slash um, Jack the Rippers from uh, the far future Reykjavik were not in their wheelhouse, but everything else was. Right. But the costume that Magnus Greel, uh, Wang Chiang, is wearing is certainly not a futuristic costume. It is very period. It's very Victorian. It's, yep. you know, the leather hood. It's not anything that you would see like 
from the set of the mutants or no. Ark in space or anything that was set in the future. It's definitely no. firmly ensconced in the 1970s ideal of Victoriana. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, nowadays we'd call this steampunk, I think, in some ways. <laughs> in um, some ways. In some ways. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's Morlock Knight, um, mm-hmm. but only done a few years earlier. And the set work is very good, both in choosing the locations to film, like the, yep. in the pathology lab, which is a location, or the police station, which is a location, down to the replica of the Victorian sewers, which is a set, which... Very convincing and very nice uh, uh, set pieces at the end of episode two, where we're doing in the Victorian flies at the at the theater up in the you know where the scenery backdrops are. It was also it, it was all shot in Nottingham somewhere, wasn't it? Northampton. Northampton at the Royal Theatre. It's one of those middling middling towns. Northampton, the Royal Theatre, Northampton. Know it well. <laughs> It still had the original Victorian flies, the backstage area, so they used that as a set, and it's very, well, obviously very convincing because it's real. Yeah. And David Maloney did the scouting for the scenery, and then he used the location of the Royal Theater to pad out the second part, that, that chase scene between uh, Magnus Greel Wang Chang and Tom Baker's doctor. Yep. Yep. It's very it's very meticulously crafted, this bit of um, television. Yeah, yeah. So, so in your intro, you had mentioned that you were kind of suspicious of this because it was a kind of Victorian drama yeah. set. At what, yeah. at what point, when did it win you over? Was it after the first episode um, when we saw the rat or? <laughs> when I saw the rat? Um, no. Uh, when did it win me over? It won me over pretty quickly, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at this time, uh, you know, obviously, um, I'll just give you, give you a little bit of background. You know, the BBC was still very much a kind of an educative an educative organization. It was always about, you know, it was teaching you and improving you. Mm-hmm. And every Sunday night... Um, there was something called the classic serial where they would usually adapt Dickens or, you know, something similar to Dickens mm-hmm. and everybody would be walking about and, you know, it was a way of getting kids, you know, interested in reading Charles Dickens, which of course <laughs> kids aren't really. Not really. Even though, even, even though Charles Dickens is awesome kids and you should read him because he's a really good writer and his books are fabulous. At that time, I really wasn't, really wasn't into it. So all the Victorian stuff, you know, it, it smacked of being, you know, being educated mm-hmm. in some kind of way, which is fine. Um, but I didn't, really watch Doctor Who to be educated I watched Doctor <laughs> Who to see monsters and I watched Doctor Who to see spaceships and I watched Doctor Who to, to see you know sci-fi extraordinary extraordinary sci-fi adventures right um, this didn't look like that there were going to be any extraordinary sci-fi adventures. I don't really like theatres and I uh, that much. Um, I certainly don't like kind of you know music hall, um, mm-hmm. and I don't like music hall now, and I didn't really like music hall then. Right. So I didn't really care for that hugely. Um, How about magic? Uh, no, I've never enjoyed magic that much either. Um, uh, so what about this say, does appeal to you? <laughs> uh, so okay, I, I'm, this is a very long story. So. Uh, I, Mr. Sin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Deep Roy. Deep Roy. Um, I was deeply disappointed by Mr. Sin hmm. because it was, oh, my God, this is like, you know, um, it's this isn't a monster. This is like a ventriloquist dummy. Right. It's just walking about. Mm-hmm. That isn't scary. The the and I, I the 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 episode that really 
tipped this over the edge for me in terms of, oh my God, this is actually going to be really, really good, is the episode, The Cliffhanger, um, where we see the real face of Bangless Greel. Mm, so not until episode five, part five. Not really until part five did this really start. And then when that happened, mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, and now it's part six. Um, I should have been paying attention through all the rest. I really didn't watch this very closely because I, I really wasn't enjoying it that uh -huh. much. Um, I, I thought it was Doctor Who is doing, trying to educate me. He's going back to Victorian <laughs> London. It's all these boring Victorian things like where are the spaceships? Where are the monsters? And then OMG, there's the monster. He's mm -hmm. right there. And uh, if, if again, if I rewind myself all the way back to the first time I ever saw this episode, which is sort of what we're doing a little bit, rather than on repeated rewatches where, you know, you obviously realize what a superb and excellent piece of drama it is, is that is is part six where, you know, there's a laser battle fight, right. um, you know, in a Chinese temple. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, Magnus Grill is revealed as like really, really hideously deformed mm -hmm. in a really kind of hideously deformed way. I will say, however, all the way through the character that I identified most with, and I didn't really like the Doctor pretending to be Sherlock Holmes. I thought that was silly. Mm -hmm. um, I really identified with Leela all the way through because yeah. she seemed to be the only person who wasn't pretending to be a Victorian. Right. Um, and the only person who was like, you know, what the hell's going on here? We, you know, we need to solve a mystery. So that's a, that's a sort of description of how I was feeling about the talents of Wayne Chang when I was 11. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until the very end almost that it really, kind yep. of grabbed you the end where it suddenly clicked for mm -hmm. me and um like so many doctor who's of this era obviously you know i watched it once mm -hmm. i then bought the novelization mm -hmm. and then i read the novelization over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until finally you know 20 years or so later mm -hmm. um I, I was able to buy it on um uh, buy it on vhs right. and then watch it and then actually watch it again right so um uh you know the, this, this this story really really lives for me as a novelization and it's a very good novelization i think it's it's, it must be Terence Dix again. Yeah. Um, yep. But it's when he's, you know, when he's actually doing them right rather than kind of messing around with them. Um, I love, you know, the front cover artwork's excellent. Jeff Cummings is a great right. um, illustrator. Um, I think it has Mr. Sin and the Rat. Huh? Mr. Sin and the Rat. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, again, I haven't read the novelization recently, obviously. But I think, uh, you know, the kind of gothic... Uh, steampunk horrible kind of hammer nature of Mr. Sin is quite well played up by Dix as far as I remember Most um, yeah. the brain of a pig mm -hmm. um, and the instincts of a pig it's really kind of played up and that really worked for me very well as a kind of a horror as a horror novel and it actually works very well as a kind of you know pseudo Sexton Blake mid uh, early 20th century pulp pulp novel um but actually when i watched the show i really I, I i really wasn't enjoying i wasn't enjoying it as much as i enjoyed enjoyed robots of death right. or um i actually had a similar feeling about it i think as you know our, our listeners will remember when we were talking about um a face of evil mm -hmm. and i'd been down on face of evil because it reminded me of star trek mm -hmm. and uh, i was definitely down on 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 uh i was not enjoying talents of wang chiang because it reminded me of a classic serial and the classic serial was uh television radio what was the classic oh yeah serial? no it was tv it was tv okay. yeah it was tv actually as far as i remember and i'd have to be you know a classic serial nerd rather than a doctor who nerd <laughs> as far as i remember um at that time 
both Terence Dix and uh, Barry Letts mm-hmm. were actually deeply involved in producing the classic serial for Sunday nights on um, uh, BBC One. Okay, so a yeah. who connection there. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting that this structurally, this story, Holmes kind of divides in the four-part, then two-part um, structure. The first four episodes are more focused on the, the theater, Lee Sang Chang. It, yep. it, it isn't until parts five and six where we switch over to the the laundry and um, basically where Greel deserts or abandons Chang and yep. moves in to, and we step it up into a more of a sci-fi uh, story. Place, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, and again, you know, he's sucking the life force out of, um, young girls. I mean, right. I wasn't that interested in young girls at that point, um, <laughs> and I certainly didn't like that. You know what? What seemed to me to be not actually science, which is like you can't suck the life force out of things. That doesn't make sense. Right. So I wasn't enjoying that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, enjoying it that much. But as soon as he said, as soon as I got my hands on the novelization, which came out in November 1977. So almost um, what five so, months, six, six months so after. Not, so not not long after yeah. and you know i i would buy the novelizations because you know i, I wanted to watch them again mm-hmm. um, i'm pretty sure i didn't buy this immediately um i probably bought it you know somewhere in uh 78 or 79 but it quickly became one of my favorite reads mm-hmm. um another actually really strong memory for this is that um i think the episode five which was um you know the episode that you know really kind of imprinted itself on me, um, the cliffhanger of uh, thereof. Mm-hmm. I think I actually remember I watched it at my grandmother's, and I think my grandmother had a black and white television rather than a color one, so I had to watch it in black and white. Right. Um, and I can also remember that I think my sister was playing outside, so she actually missed <laughs> the cliffhanger with the grill face, and then I kind of basically tormented her for the. The, the, the next week saying like you missed the most awesome piece of Doctor Who ever and, and like, really really scared her um, that this was going to be the most scary thing that she'd ever seen mm-hmm. um, so she was like li- literally kind of you know shaking with fear when the reprise came at, um, at the beginning of part six and did it live up to her expectations did you s- um, oversell it <laughs> um, you'd have to ask her um, okay. I remember it extremely clearly she's probably forgotten it because I don't think Doctor <laughs> Who imprinted quite as strongly on her as it did on me yeah, I'll have to ask Finn what his mom remembers of it. <laughs> Finn, go and ask your mom. Um, does she remember seeing uh, the uh, beginning of episode six of The Talents of Wang Chiang? <laughs> Cheers, thanks. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get back to that next week then. <laughs> we will, yeah. <laughs> so it, also interesting that you were relating to Leela because I have mixed feelings about Leela in this story. And this is the this is the first story that Leela kind of slips into the classic Doctor Who girl companion role in a couple cases. Ah, okay. Um, Bob Holmes made Leela into a screamer in a couple couple cases in this story, which I'm not she, sure really okay. fits well, with was, her character. She was being eaten by a rat. I mean, you know, give her a break. Yeah, there, there's that. But then earlier on, just in episode one, when she's fighting with the gang of Chinese at uh, Tong, Tong members, yeah, this Tong and the Black Scorpion, she's cornered and she gives a little scream there too. And I'm just right. It's not the type of characterization I would think of from Leela. And I'm wondering 
I'm wondering if this is the influence of the setting more than the character. You know, Jameson was only, this is only the third serial that Jameson had done. So she had done eight episodes prior to this. And I wonder if she had as protective as over the character as she has become now within Big Finish. Right, right, if she, right. If she went along with it a little more. Um, yeah. Also... I mean, I think, I mean, there's definitely... Sorry, it's interrupting, no. um, but there's definitely in this, I mean, you know, one of the, I think, one of the inspirations for the Leela character was Pygmalion yep. um, and My Eliza, Fair Lady. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, obviously this is the kind of Victorian era, so this is the era of My Fair Lady. Right. So in some ways, I've always kind of vaguely assumed that, you know, that Bob Holmes was making Leela more of an Eliza Doolittle um, than a kind of, you know, ass-kicking Amazon warrior from, like, a hell planet. (laughs) Um, So, you know, her character kind of changes to fit into, you know, what was supposed to be happening to her as a character, which she was supposed to be being civilized by the Doctor. Right, and a lot of that civilizing goes to Professor Lightfoot in this story. Exactly, yes, yes. Who's Why kinda... can't a woman be more like a man? <laughs> well... He sings. No, he doesn't no. sing that. He could have done. He could have done. Yeah, well, so he's kind of the uh, epitome of the English gentleman. He's uh, very, very learned, traveled very modest of his abilities not overly critical of Leela and the scene I think that a lot of fans would cite is where Leela grabs the slab of meat and starts eating yep. it and uh and, and Lightfoot looks at the plate and decides hmm, no I think I'll <laughs> join join my guest in her manner and offers her a fork and a knife and Leela looks at the knife and says it's a good knife and <laughs> off they go but then a little bit later Later, and I think we cut away to whatever the doctor's doing, and we return to Leela and Lightfoot, and Lightfoot's gently reminding her not to wipe her hands on the tablecloth, but we use napkins. So yeah, it's yeah. you kind of see that uh, gent- gentrifying of Leela a little bit. Yeah, but I mean, she, again, I mean, she just jumped through a window as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, yeah. she still got she still got some Amazonian savagery yep. to her. Jump through the window, then she goes, um, jumps on the back of Chang's carriage, and she does. tails him back to the. A theater she replaces herself with the prostitute um and sure, then sure that girl we, wasn't a prostitute i thought she was just a young lady <laughs> of some kind well she she insisted she was a lady and she certainly was but i think the implications with the i know i'm joking yes yeah. oh okay <laughs> yes <laughs> she's a, a lady a lady of the night <laughs> a lady of the night exactly a lady of the night a lady of the night because, uh, you know, not only is there, you know, prostitution in this, there's mm-hmm. also, um, you know, there's drug taking, there's an opium den yep. that we go to. This is all very, this is all very adult stuff in some ways. In some ways, yeah. <laughs> in some ways. And the scene, the confrontation scene between Leela and Greel, that first scene, I also felt that Holmes kind of let Leela down in that scene that Leela ran away and that's how she winds up in the sewers. Right, right. We, we learn or we know uh, that Greel is having some health issues <laughs> to say the least. Right. He's he's kind of low energy. He needs these young young women that he's draining of their, basically cannibalizing their life essence to uh, vital bodily fluids, to, yeah. <laughs> to, stay, to stay alive. But Leela wasn't a match for him at this point in time. So, right. and that she runs away after very bravely 
hopping the carriage back to the theater, switching her place with another woman, trying to rescue the the cleaner lady from being drained of her life force. And then she has a little bit of a skirmish with Wang Chang, yep. but then runs away into the sewers. And it's sort of like, well, you know, dramatically we know why that happens, but it might have yeah. been better if she was pursuing Greel into the sewers or something rather than, and got lost or got, right or something rather than just running away. Because I don't think that's true to Lila's character. And then we have the, the, the cliffhanger where she's being attacked by the giant rat and, and screaming which right. doesn't really work for me for the Leela character. So that's why I'm of mixed minds for Leela. She's really awesome in some parts, but then in other parts, she's not really being true, true to her awesome self. Right. Yeah, yeah. And you, you, you would think more like a Sarah Jane running away rather than Leela. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, it may have been, you know, the reason that I was enjoying Leela so much in this tale is that the relationship seemed to be more Sarah Janey, mm-hmm. the Doctor and Sarah Jane, rather than the Doctor and Leela. So, I'm, um, you know, I may, again, as an 11-year-old, I may have been like, oh, yes, they finally decided to go back to, like, a proper relationship between the Doctor and his and his special friend. Um, <laughs> so it was... This new one. It was more familiar or more... More familiar, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, that could be. That could be, actually. Mm-hmm. No, I hadn't thought of that. Um, a lot of neat world building. The details that we see reflect in the sets are also, you know, the hallmark of Holmes's writing with the all the little kisses of world building where we have the yeah. Reykjavik, Filipino army, but then just like the background that Lightfoot was born in China. His uh, father was the brigadier of the punitive expedition of 1860. Yep. Mrs. Hudson, which was re- reflective back to Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes, yeah. A lot of, just a lot of Holmes' signature writing traits of really good details, yep. one line or two lines of world building that come and just expand that whole story out to give it a much broader setting. Right. This combination of... Lightfoot, where we have the Doctor and Lightfoot paired up, and then we have Leela and Lightfoot paired up, and then we have the Doctor and Jago paired up, and before that we had Jago and Casey paired up. We have these pairs, that, you know, the classic Holmes double act, and right. that that combination between Jago and Lightfoot, they don't meet until we're in episode five. So we have this slow buildup of four episodes of learning more about these two really well-developed uh, supporting characters that then when they come together in part five, they can go off, have their own adventure separate from Leela and the Doctor, and it still holds our attention. It's still We still care about these characters enough. We're interested in them, and we feel, I think, their peril when they're captured by Magnus Greel. Exactly. And when they try to escape and then they're recaptured, you know, it's, it's sort of like they need the rescuing by the doctor <laughs> in right, order right. To, to escape. But they are not helpless. And in fact, they find Greel before the doctor and Leela do. Yeah. yeah. So I think yeah. these are some of the strong points of Holmes's writing really coming through. And the, I think the, the, the double act of Jago and Lightfoot, no wonder, big finish. Yeah, what have we got, so 10 much. series, 10 series now? Of, of certainly, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, 10 series of Jago and Lightfoot, of course, no mm-hmm. more, I think. Yeah, because uh, passing of Trevor yeah. Baxter. Uh, Trevor, Trevor, Trevor Baxter died, yeah, which is yeah. a shame, but then he was quite old, so that's yes. fine. And he was quite young when he played... Uh, he was so young, I can't believe George he was Lightfoot, so young. Yeah, 
Yeah. Exactly. Um, Both he and uh, Christopher Benjamin, who played Henry Gordon Jago, <laughs> were <laughs> relatively young men at Rel- that time. Re- relative youngsters, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was only 45. A youngster. Uh, he's younger than me, and he was playing an old Victorian gentleman of some kind. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Well, actually, probably he, look, he actually looks a bit like he could be forty. Well, no, he looks, he looks older. I'd have said he was in his mid fifties, but he was in yeah, his mid forties. They've they've grayed his hair a little bit. They can do makes. wonders with makeup nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was looking at him in the extra. He looks he looks definitely older than he did in his forties. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, yes, yeah, yeah, cool, yeah. So, and and I mean, just just to go back to kind of the detailing with with I mean, it's just the kind of gory details as well, which is so good, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Just the disgusting things like, you know, head of the brain of a pig and, um, you know, the rat in general. I mean, the rat the rat comes in from a lot of stick. I actually kind of like the rat. Okay. Um, I think it's a it's a peculiarly kind of horrible concept. And, you know, sewers and just kind of general nastiness is, is kind of, again, right in sort of Holmes's kind of thing that Holmes likes, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So... It is flawed, or it hasn't lived up to modern viewing. They couldn't produce this today due to, um, I think, uh, the attitudes that are taken against or, against or uh, on the Chinese. Yeah. Um, Holmes is really dealing with a lot of stereotypes here, not only of the Chinese, but you know, we have Casey, which is kind of a stereotypical Irishman. We have uh, uh, yeah, that was pretty common. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. right. It's a typical it, Irishman in faulty towers. Well, anyway, carry on, Mister O'Reilly. Mister <laughs> O'Reilly. Oh. Right. Uh, we have the ghoul or the crone or the hag of uh, yeah, uh, with the lines that uh, Mark Gatiss then swiped from Empress of Mars with uh, "Make a horse sick that way," or "I've never seen that on all my puff." And yeah. Yeah. And then the police are stereotypical of that time. And yeah. Holmes is doing, I think, under the writing pressure of this because there was concern that he would be able to deliver the script. And so... Six episodes. That's a lot of television. Yeah. And so he was able to deliver, I think, the first three episodes to David Maloney, the director, to kind of start doing the the planning. And they started, right. But he wasn't able to deliver it as complete things. So he... He was, I think, like you said, leaning on or um, pulling up all the ideas that things that interest him. And he was dealing with a lot of stereotypes and the details, all the Holmes hallmarks are there when the writing, but then very problematic with just the doctor, the doctor's attitude to the Chinese, the, you know, you, you would expect the, the, the policeman to call the, the Chinese coolie who's picked up after uh, Leela and the doctor trip him up as uh, Johnny. But you wouldn't expect the doctor to call them as little men or, you know, just it's yeah. the, the doctor is very, very establishment in this and not establishment of the 1970s per se, but he's more of establishment of the what is it 1890s when this takes place yeah Yeah. yeah. so that's where i feel it's where the real kind of racism comes in it's sort of like the doctor's attitude like leela doesn't even question why are the people treating chinese people differently yeah you know because she doesn't have that cultural bias and here she's being kind of educated yeah i'll I'll put you on the spot here us oldsters of the classic era hold this up as one of the the highlights of well the 70s definitely hinchcliffe's home era the you know their ultimate final story but 
I think modern audiences really see this and kind of cringe up at the racism that is prevalent throughout it. Maybe a little bit of classist in there where the, the white males are the ones that are right. Women are either cleaners, they're prostitutes. Leela, who's uncivilized, it's racist, it's classist. Women definitely don't get the better end of the stick in this serial. How much interpretation do you think is needed? Or do, you, do we just take this as this is... I mean, it's. I mean, it's definitely. I mean, it's definitely a period piece. Um, I. I mean, I think you know the attitudes to women um, are you know improved ever. You know, actually improved over some 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 of the third doctor's uh, era. I think. Right. Um, and I mean, it's you know, I. I th- it's in some ways it's slightly leavened by the fact that it is in. It's. It's not. It's not set in the contempt. It's not set in the contemporary day. Right. You couldn't um, get away so, with it. It was set in the 1970s, I think. And I think even in the 1970s, you wouldn't have been able to get it, get away with it being set in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they were able to get away with it because it was set in the 1890s and it was deliberately, um, you know, referencing Fu Manchu and Sexton Blake and you know Yellow Peril right. and all of those you know early 20th century pulp novels right. um, that were about the fear of Chinese people, you mm-hmm. know, which of course is nonsense and weird to us now, but right. I guess, you know, made for fun reading at that time. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, like any piece of period drama, and this is piece, this is a piece of period drama, you know, it's 50, you know, it's a 40, 50 or so years old as a piece of drama, 40 years old. Uh, I think, uh, you know, you have to give it some kind of contextualization. I mean, ironically, you know, what is ostensibly the most offensive part of Wang Chiang, which is the the yellow face hmm. um, of John Bennett playing Li San Chang. Ironically, it's the, ironically, that's a very nuanced and mm-hmm. um, uh, intelligent performance um, of a, you know, a very conflicted and flawed character and um, ultimately betrayed and rejected ultimately betrayed and rejected and you know the the very clear difference in what is obviously an offensive chinese accent between his on stage accent and his off stage accent mm-hmm. you know and again it's it's a it's, it's a great performance right if only they'd got someone chinese to do it rather than john bennett mm-hmm. um so i mean ironically you know that's actually in some ways the most offensive part is actually the least offensive part because it, it, it is actually a great character right i think the more offensive bit is the attitude i think that the doctor takes rather than the attitude that the victorians take on the chinese or even the portrayal that bennett does as yeah. lee sang chang and, and and the doctor takes that attitude because you know that is the attitude that the hero of a pulp early 20th century, uh, you know, pulp novel or pop pulp thriller would take to a gang of Chinese people. Right. Um, so, you know, he's falling straight into being a stock pulp character rather right. than being the doctor. Right. Um, which is a shame because mm-hmm. the doctor is the doctor. He's not, I mean, he is a pulp character because right. um, these are melodramatic pulp adventures. Mm-hmm. But what should raise them into greatness, what, what often does raise them into greatness is the doctor doesn't behave like the hero of a pulp me- a pulp melodrama is supposed to behave. Right. Um, and in this, and certainly in the early episodes, that's exactly how he's behaving mm-hmm. and I guess you know one could imagine that 
maybe the doctor knows in some weird way that he's on television um, and that he's, you know, he's the lead character in a pastiche of an early 20th century pulp, um, pulp novel. Right. Um, and therefore he's behaving that way because that's the way he should behave. You right. know, you can get really, you can get super meta about this if you want, mm-hmm. but you know, it's, 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 again, it's down to the writers. I think it's down to the speed that Holmes is writing this. Right. And, you know, the genius of his, you know, his speed writing was um, he would just mix together all the things that he liked the most right. um, all the things that he remembered from when he was a child and kind of voraciously reading books and when he was a policeman and solving crimes I guess I assume he was somewhat, somewhat involved in solving crimes when, mm-hmm. when he was a policeman um, and you know uh, not really bothering to check his working right um, and a lot more interested in the kind of stereotypical alienness of people who aren't British than um, the fact that the Doctor is also an alien and therefore shouldn't be behaving the same way as British policemen would right. be doing at the same time. Well, I would think that he would be countering it or, or subverting it like he has in the past, uh, like like when John Pertwee would kind of undercut or subvert the power structure. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the, the excuse that I, I will grant Holmes is that you can see where he's writing under deadline because right. with, the, with the bloody hand of Mr. Sin as a clue, we have that just in the previous story with a robot with a bloody hand. Yeah. That is something I think if you had more time, you might have tried to do something slightly different to indicate that there's a, there's something untoward has occurred. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think that there's a lot robot of... Robot has bloody hand, exactly. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think there's a lot of, we got to crank this out. We're under a deadline. Robert Banks Stewart canceled on us. He went to ITV. Uh, right. We need a script. And... We got to do a show. We got to yeah. do a show. So I think there's some lack of polish. The prevailing attitudes that the doctor takes of the period is where the disappointment is probably... Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, agreed, agreed, agreed. Mm-hmm. And again, as a as an older watcher, you know, I'm able to kind of look past that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have the privilege to be able to look past that and imagine that this is, you know, it's one of those Hammer movies from the from the sixties right. where you know it's an evil Chinese Tong. You know, mm-hmm. maybe you know, maybe it's you know, maybe it's a Shaw Brothers movie. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and this is all this is all just people messing around in their black pajamas. Right. Um, I just wonder how prevalent that would be in in British culture because just like three years later, David Yip starred in the Chinese detective like in the Chinese detective in 1980 and or 81 and you know there was there was established british actors like Bert Kwok who played Cato in the Inspector Clouseau Pink Panther films i wonder if he would have been available to play Lee Sing Chang so it's just he would have been great actually as Chang so yeah. i just i just wonder what's i just wonder i have to say the chinese detective was a bit racist because the only thing that made I mean, it was like it was that that was David David Yip's kind of superpower, or like the diff because he was he was Chinese, right. and that was the only thing that kind of made him different from all the <laughs> other cops was his Chineseness. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's a it's a difficult one, and I think as I've said, the only kind of mitigating explanation really is that a writer in a hurry is falling back on on things that he mm-hmm. knows well, which are you know this particular kind of pulp analysis of. Chinese society right. or whatever you call it you know the secret societies and, and the tongs you know right. it's like um and but it's not it's but it's done you know it's not like you know big trouble in little china or something which is also kind of vaguely offensive i guess <laughs> 
made in the 80s um, when you could get away with more of that kind of thing. Um, there is a streak of kind of meanness to it. Right. Um, uh, you don't really feel that the writer has a lot of, he's not doing it out of affection. Um, there's not a lot of sympathy. There's not a lot of sympathy there. These are just, these are kind of stock evil characters. Right. And, you know, if you're Chinese, you're evil. Mm-hmm. And they're out to get us. Right. Yeah. There you go. Um, can we just circle back to the giant rat for a second? Absolutely. Um, I love uh, the giant rat, actually. <laughs> uh, the giant rat, is, giant rat is great. I think it's an amazing nod to another, you know, piece of great literature, which is H.G. Wells' um, Food of the Gods. Hmm. Um, and, you know, the whole kind of giant animal subgenre of kind of pulp science fiction. Right. Uh, it was actually kind of cool to see Leela in her underwear, even <laughs> though I didn't really understand why it was cool. Um, but it was kind of cool. Um, the only thing that was wrong with that rat is that yes, they wet you know they they wet Leela down because um, she's in a sewer. They don't <laughs> wet the rat down. That is the only problem. <laughs> they wet Leela down because she's in a white flimsy blouse. Exactly. If only if only they'd put some water or some grease or whatever on that rat right. and made its hair all like slick and shiny and matted, mm-hmm. it would have been amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't, and it's sort of you know it's. Uh, but I mean, let's let, let's 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 give it some kudos. Um, there've been way worse Doctor Who monsters than that rat, in my opinion. <laughs> um, you know, the Merka, I think, is my personal. Um, Nadia of Doctor Who monsters, you know, <laughs> pantomime monsters. Um, well, and, at least um, it's not an invisible enemy <laughs> where we see, uh, you know, previously we had about uh, the face of evil, an invisible monster, planet of evil, invisible monster. an invisible, an invisible monster. monster. It's a visible monster and it's a monster. What's more monstrous than a giant rat? Right. It's awesome. Thing of stop, nightmares. Stop criticizing the rat. Mm-hmm. It's it's good. Yeah. Poor, poor Louise Jameson was coming down with... Uh, glandular fever i guess if you're british or mono mononucleosis you call it glandular fever yes which is a horrible thing to have but she was bravely struggling on well right. done well done louise jameson <laughs> my favorite scene in the whole series is the bit in the boat when they're going the doctor lightfoot and uh the i guess the person the captain or whoever's rowing rowing the right. boat the doctor's the doctor's all excited and Jago saying, please sit down, don't rock the boat. And the doctor's, you know, has the big uh, gun from Birmingham. And I really, piece, yes. I like that they filmed that on location. I think that yeah. just adds so much to it. It certainly, you certainly could have filmed it somehow on a stage where. Or in a tank or something. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. but it just, this, the, the whole story takes place in, I think, three nights two days or something like that it's very very short time period yeah i like how you can see the days passing i like how the doctor goes out on the boat there's a lot of things to really like on it and it just i think it's a it's a flawed masterpiece and it's not aging as well as i would have hoped it to have yeah yeah Mm -hmm. no yeah exactly Mm -hmm. exactly exactly um yeah you know it, it has become it has become a flaw a, a, a flawed masterpiece mm-hmm. over time um which is a shame and you know it's become a period piece like the period pieces that it was that it was ripping off right. you know it's 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 become one of those right. um and you, you and in some ways you have to watch it with those eyes right. um that you use if you pick up a you know bulldog drummond novel or something mm-hmm. Um, which are actually really actually which are horrible. Don't don't ever p- pick up a bulldog <laughs> drum and novel. They're really super racist. So um, what's with so yeah? What's with the doctor whistling Colonel Bogey's March again? 
this is is this the only oh. is this the only thing Tom Baker knows how to whistle? Probably, probably. <laughs> he probably thought it was funny. Um, you know, you know. I Tom, suppose he's nuts. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, the, I'm sure the Doctor was there at the premiere of the Bridge of the River Kwai. Um, so there you go. That's how he. That's how he knows how to whistle it. And uh, no Sonic in this. No Sonic. He gets well, locked. Locked behind exactly. a door, and he just pushes the key out onto a piece of paper. Well, you don't need a Sonic, yep. And, and let's also do a shout-out to the Doctor's really pretty cool Victorian Doctor costume, mm-hmm. um, which With I'm very stalker. sorry, <laughs> sorry, never never appeared again. Mm-hmm. Um, I would dearly, it's never going to happen, but you know why, the, why we can't have an action figure um, uh, featuring Tom Baker in that Victorian costume, I've no idea. In fact, I do know it's, it would be really expensive and no one would buy it. Um, but that would be my dream action figure of Tom Baker. Well, you would think uh, they need a. I think they need a better Leela action figure. I, they went for the retro '70s look for the Leela action figure. I think they need a more contemporary sculpt of Louise Jameson. Yeah, no, they do because I mean the the only two the only two Leela figures you can get are the Invasion of Time mm-hmm. and uh, Face of Evil, which are you know beginning and end of Leela. We want we want Leela in her Victorian garb. Right. We want Leela dressed as a lighthouse keeper. <laughs> um, you know, we want all different kinds of Leelas. We want Leela mm-hmm. in her underwear, obviously. <laughs> oh, that would sell <laughs> out. <laughs> that definitely would sell out. Definitely sell out. Uh, it was nice seeing Dudley Simpson in the orchestra pit. So our composer nice. gets an on-screen call there. A nice nod to our Dud there <laughs> in the orchestra pit. Exactly, so. exactly. Well, there we go. Mm-hmm. I think we've, um, yeah. I think we've looked at this one pretty extensively. Yeah, I think it's a, a fitting end. I think to the Hinchcliffe Holmes era. Yeah, it was. It's very Hinchcliffe Holmesy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I guess you know, you say these things backwards, but you know, it does pretty much do all the Hinchcliffe Holmes things that Hinchcliffe, Hinchcliffe and Holmes are known for doing, mm-hmm. um, uh, which makes it a very fitting end to their era. And I think, as we, I think, as, as I was saying last week. Um, it also broke the bank, um, um, which meant that the following season cost no money at all. Right, it was um, on the house. It was on the house, exactly, which accounts for some of its, its slightly more shonky than usual um, as we move into the 15th season mm-hmm. of Doctor Who. Yeah, so that will be next week. Next week we have the horror of Fang Rock, which is one of my wow. favorite stories. It's a great story, that. Yep, yep. There's very, and again, we're back in. Well, actually, we're we're in, we're in the Edwardian era. Yep, we move up a the, couple decades. A couple of decades, but it's still it's super cool and awesome, mm-hmm. um, and very yeah, very, uh, very Bob Holmesy in many ways. Um, <laughs> so, which is interesting. But anyway, great. So that's next week. All right. Um, well, thank you for listening to episode fifty-five. This has been a flashback episode of the Metabulous Two, where we looked at the towns of Wang Chang. Um, we did indeed look at those talons. <laughs> so um, sorry, <laughs> kind of spacey here. Spacey, uh, yeah. It's been um, a long day. <laughs> he's David. That is David. You've just yes. Uh, uh, say, I'm I'm David, and I I increasingly am Ben. So um, <laughs> until next time, we meet on the airwaves. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Good night. Good night. Okay.
Next time on the Metabulous 2 Podcast. Ahoy! She's on again, huh? Danged electricity. Wouldn't happen with oil. Ahoy! Ben and David will flash back to Horror of Fang Rock. <laughs> What is going on? David, can you hear me? Ooh, we've lost connection. David?